It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates and along with E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. And back to the show, Gary Hepburn, a dean of the Chang School of Continuing Education at Ryerson University. Gary, welcome back. Thank you very much, David. Great to be back. Well, uh, since you were last on the show, things have changed a little bit. And uh, funny enough, um, to some degree, uh, this is this is more uh, perhaps poignant that we have you now to talk about um, online experiences for for teaching because that's what's going on these days. Sure is. It's almost entirely what's going on. Yeah, and of course we've been hearing a lot about the challenges that people are are facing uh, when it comes to online learning. But, you know, given given the way this has rolled out because of, of a pandemic and people were forced into it and everything was thrown at everybody all at once, uh, no doubt it's not surprising there's been confusion and uh, some frustration. And also uh, finding out uh, about the... Uh, uh, about the uh, uh, things that are missing uh, that, that can help this online experience uh, happen in, in a, uh, a productive way. Yes, absolutely. You know, it was quite, um, quite a pivot that, the, that, that higher education had to do uh, back in March where, where um, you know, we have always had online courses and mm. have a certain capacity for that. Mm-hmm. But as everybody went online, whether they had experience or not, um, it, it did pose quite a challenge at that time. What are some of the basic things that you you were hearing or have heard since the pandemic started in terms of trying to roll out some kind of, you know, not the ideal situation, but just in terms of what people were dealing with that, you know, I mean, I mean, we, geez, so many things are running through my mind, even down to, you know, the bandwidth, you know, uh, of some something that, that could interfere with just just getting a, a link going, for instance. Oh, absolutely, and and you know, there there was a great deal that that um in in my case, university faculty had to deal with, but um, you know, students also had to deal with a great deal because we we really weren't prepared for this um, to happen, mm-hmm. and we had to be able to work both on the instructional mm-hmm. end, but also we had to consider what kind of technology students had available to them, but also the connectivity issues mm-hmm. in between. So really, the whole system got stress tested at once, mm-hmm. and um, and you know there were difficulties. We 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 needed to move to something that was quite new for most people, but there were also some really interesting learnings um, that that came about in that the way just the way we had to do it when we were doing it quickly did put us onto things like you know we're being we're kind of talking via Zoom today, mm-hmm. and. Um, and that actually became a fairly standard thing that, that I think every university faculty member and student knows how to use now, but we couldn't say the same a few months ago. True enough. Uh, um, now, so what and how did your experience dealing with uh, the Chang School of Continuing Education and already uh, uh, using online experiences for students and for faculty 
How do you think that helped you during this this COVID situation? Well, first of all, we were very lucky. We had the capacity to help. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we have a great deal of, um, of online technology experts and instructional designers who were there to help out. But usually our, our, our online development process, when we're developing what I'll call fully online courses, um, it takes about six to eight months at least to do a course. We, we do it over a period of time. And in this case, we had to do a massive number of courses, but we, you know, in the winter term, we had one week to do it. Mm. When we came into spring and summer, we, we had a month, which is also very fast, but it seemed like a luxury compared to the, to the, winter, to the winter term. Right. So we were able to bring those people into the equation very quickly. And what we had to develop was a, a mass process where we, we actually took a number of um, instructors who were not familiar with an online environment and we had to rapidly bring them up to speed so one of our mottos through the, all of that was to keep it simple to, mm. to not come in very quickly and try fancy things that would be unfamiliar to instructors and students but to to basically try to cover off the the simple aspects of an online learning environment without it without making it too complicated or um or too technically um you know, uh, the, the, to keep the technology requirements relatively low. So, you know, many, many instructors had experience with this and they, some of them went in and did, did some quite amazing things, but the majority really just um, needed a little bit of support as they were bringing their courses around. And again, as I said, keep it simple was really our motto as we, as we moved into this period of time. Right. Um. Have you uh, been approached by, say, other universities or other uh, teaching institutions that were not as, uh, you know, up on this as your your school to try and get some some understanding or or some kind of, um, you know, uh, take advantage of some of your experience to, to the, so that they could uh, bring this into their own environment? We've had a, we've had quite a few informal conversations with with. Um, colleagues of mine across the country, but but nothing too formal. Mm. The winter term had to be done really quickly. So there were courses in progress and we didn't really have time to collaborate because everybody had to do it in just about a week. Right. So every, everyone needed to focus at that point. But as we come into the fall term where we do have a bit more time to think about it, uh, there are collaborations. I'm not, it, it is more at the university to university level, mm-hmm. but there are collaborations being explored where, where there, there might be sharing of, um, of online courses, um, some flexibility, some inter-recognition between universities, just to make sure that students are well-served and have the choices they need. But, but I know those discussions are actively going on right now. And what would you say um, people are, are, are saying, is this going to, you know, is my education going to suffer? Uh, you know, how, how is this going to, from your experience, how do, how, how do you think and what have you seen in the past from your experiences of doing online courses uh, in terms of how information is sent, how it is received, how it is communicated um, for both, uh, both the, the instructor and the student? Uh, to you know, to benefit them in, in and can it be compared to in class teaching? Well, and this is one of the things that's been going on for years. So there, there's a, there's a body of literature um, comparing online teaching to in class teaching, 
And they basically call it the non, no significant difference phenomena. Meaning if you look at educational outcomes, objectives of the courses, um, there, there really is no difference uh, be, in, in general. There yeah. might be some differences in very specific cases, but in general, there's little difference between what students achieve in the classroom and what they achieve online. Now I should add, what we're comparing here are well-designed online courses. So mm. the eight month process I talked about earlier, where a lot of time and thought and, and a lot of technical expertise is brought to bear in designing those courses. The ones that are virtualized, these are where, where there were face-to-face classes in classrooms and they were, they were moved very quickly online are a different beast. And honestly, we have never done this before, so we don't actually have any ability to compare them. Uh, what I can say in terms of the learning outcomes, but what I can say, the experience that students and faculty have had has been interesting. You know, I think some really prefer classroom-based learning and they can't wait to get back to a classroom mm. when it's safe to do so. But I think for both instructors and for students, um, many have found that there are certain advantages um, in, in the online environment. In fact, we have a, a, a program that we talked about um, back in March when I was on your show, um, Aboriginal Knowledges and Experiences. And one amazing thing about that is it's been fairly local as it's been taught face-to-face. But since it's not gone on- online in the spring and summer term, we now have people in the course um, coast to coast mm. from British Columbia to Nova Scotia. Mm. So there are certain advantages that, that that come with it, but it's like anything else. They're both pros and cons, and then you can layer on personal preferences and learning styles. But one thing for sure is that more people have been exposed to online learning mm. and um, some will not really continue it with it when they have a choice again but many more will. Um, They'll consider it a real option in their education. And I don't think they're going to lose for it, but it does, some things you do lose. If you think of that broader university experience where you're on campus and and there there are many aspects of that. Mm. That's one thing that I think many students are missing at that point. And And certainly I think universities are struggling to reproduce some semblance of that experience in an online environment. Uh, speaking of that, in terms of an online class, I have not participated in in an online class of that nature. Uh, is it much like uh, just a meeting? Uh, and what I mean by that is, are our, our students, is it more like a, a teacher uh, uh, teaching to the students and it's a one-way conversation? Or is there two-way you know, communication between teacher and students and, and to, student, students can uh, communicate back and ask questions, et cetera. Yeah, well, there, there, there are many different options. So, so one option that's very popular, and this really has to do with, um, you know, this video conferencing, we're using Zoom now, but there are a number of other products that are similar yep. out there. Really, this technology was more or less mature and ready. So this has really been helpful um, as as, um, we brought courses online, particularly ones that were delivered face-to-face with that kind of interaction. Now, one instructor dealing with a large group of students, it becomes somewhat one way through that. But there are opportunities to have discussions just like we're having now with the technology. And and that is important. So these are, and these would be what we often call synchronous elements that happen in real time. You can also use asynchronous elements where you have discussion boards, 
Um, you might mm. share video material that's mm. been pre-prepared or exists somewhere else on the internet. And then there are a lot of course management functions, like how to get information about your assignments, to put them in the Dropbox, to receive the, the marked assignments back. So I think what we're finding is there's been a real rise as a result of this and with the mature video conferencing technology of interactive elements to the course where, the, where there, there, is a, there is a real time event, whether it's the instructor um, lecturing for, for short periods of time, or if it's students interacting with the instructor or students interacting with other students, that's really become a bigger feature um, because of the technology at this point. But there are many other things that you can do in an online environment as well, different types of collaboration between students um, and, uh, and, and various ways to, to access materials and content mm. for the right. course. Right, right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, uh, type in those coordinates and then uh, E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, as I say, right across the country. Our guest is Gary Hepburn. He's the Dean of the Chang School of Continuing Education at Ryerson University. It's a pleasure to have him and have him back. And we are talking about uh, online learning. Uh, the Chang School uh, Continuing Education uh, has been doing this uh, quite some time. So uh, Gary's very familiar with the, the challenges and the opportunities and, uh, and also uh, just the, the, the way to go about this in, in, in a successful way. Uh, Gary, having said what, what I just said, challenges, what, what would you say might be some of the, the, <laughs> the challenges um, for uh, instructing online? Well, I, I, think, I think the most obvious challenge is the learning curve. So again, some instructors are quite familiar with this environment, but the majority have um, very limited, if any, experience in this environment. So for instructors, it, it really changes a lot of things that there, there needs to be a comfort with technology. Mm. I should add one of the most interesting things we've done to help with this is we've assigned um, student technology assistance very often to courses. And we find many of our students are very fluent with this technology, even things they haven't used, they pick up very quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And they work alongside instructors if they're doing live events to help help manage interaction, mm. make sure everything's working well so right. that the instructor doesn't have to be distracted with sure. the technology they are using. Right. You know, you, you might say much like you would actually produce a radio show. I think there's yep. some similarities there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it is getting up to speed. And you know, many many instructors, there's an interactive style that they've that they've used often um, throughout their career, where they have actually been in the same room, and there's been that intimacy of a of a of a classroom with students in it. And I think that is an adjustment for people, just like we're all experiencing with social distancing, to do that kind of job, but have the students at a distance or remote from the the instructor is a fairly significant shift in the psychological experience that one would have in instructing. So I think it's not only the technology, there is just a shift to a, to a different mode of interaction and a different fundamental relationship with students. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I guess, as you said, one of the things you found that was an opportunity uh, 
through this was the fact that once uh, a, a course went online, it opened up to not just the, the local students, but peoples out, outside of the region. And you start to get students uh, in some courses right across the country, which I guess is a bit of an advantage. Yes, it absolutely is. You know, it, it's, uh, it's funny in spring and summer, um, many universities, certainly the Chang School and Ryerson University have found that, that our enrollments actually went up from our <laughs> usual levels. So we, we had more students registering courses um, than we've ever had before in, in the spring and summer session. Well, isn't that interesting? That's, yes. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. All right. Now, what about for um, remote learning, the, the challenges and the technological maybe advances advancements that, that might be needed for, for that kind of thing? Well, and, and the remote, which would be these converted classroom courses, um, I think the fact that they, the, as I mentioned, the video conference technologies have been available has been a wonderful thing because I think it has maintained some of that interaction much like there would be in a classroom. Hmm. But of course, a Zoom session or, or Google Meet or whatever technology is being used can also be overused hmm. in that you get into these very long sessions hmm. um, where, where this technology is being applied. Hmm. So. I, I think I think that act, but that use of interaction and that real time interaction, I think, has been one of the great learnings for this. Even when we go back to to fully online courses, um, courses that were designed to be delivered online, we're beginning to re rethink the interaction. So a lesson we've learned from this is that that both instructors and students value um, that real time interaction, and we're beginning to adjust how we how we do fully online courses to begin to encompass some of that and, and um, make it available. So, so that is a valuable thing, but you can also record it. So students can't mm. attend um, a live session. They can, they can um, view a recording of it mm. at, at a later date. And, and I think that that has been you know, quite good, but, but it meant that there were a number of considerations where maybe a two hour mainly lecture style class worked in a face-to-face -face environment right. it works less well in, in an online environment so as we've gone virtual i think those certain tools became very important but also appropriate use of those tools mm. um, became something that we really had to look closely at and continue to look at yeah that's that's interesting of course and, and i do i was thinking about that because uh you, you'd probably after sitting in front of a screen for a couple of hours for a session like that you, you'd probably your your brain would probably start to wander and you'd probably start to lose focus so shorter sweeter kind of uh, approach is, is probably working better as you, as you just pointed out yes and you can imagine david if um students often have a course schedule through a day um in in regular years and if they're looking at that screen for two or three hours, but then they have other oh, yeah. courses in for the sure. same day, yeah, uh, it, it it could get very long. Oh yeah, yeah. Woof! Uh, I wouldn't want. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> um, now, when I was talking about remote, uh, I was thinking of something else uh, because yeah. what I was thinking of is is challenges from say. Uh, remote communities, you know, that uh, might have have technological issues in terms of online uh, bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. Now you address that to some degree, I think, because if there is a if there is a problem with with uh, a live stream, um, but 
courses are being recorded and they're being, uh, I guess, uh, published and, and put up on the cloud, um, certainly students can go and access things that way, um, sort of viewing them in real time to some degree uh, as, as they're recorded. But um, uh, that that's what I was kind of getting at. And I'm not sure if, if you're dealing with any of that kind of situation at this point in time. You know, it hasn't been highly emphasized, but, but what you bring up is a very important point when we consider uh, remote communities. One, you know, one, one challenge is that many of the communities don't have adequate connectivity mm -hmm. or, or um, the technology yeah. at, at their end mm -hmm. to properly interact with the course. However, the, on the other side of that coin is the fact that most all courses are now available. So for communities that, that do have the technology or can get the technology one way or another, their access to education has has gone up mm. immensely um, mm. over this period of time, the choices that they can take. So from remote communities, students aren't necessarily, if they have the right connectivity and equipment, they don't necessarily have to, to travel to a center where there is a university to get their education. It can, right. in fact, be accessed from their community. And right, right now, uh, just about everything can be accessed from community. Well, that's... You know, that's very interesting because if we're thinking about indigenous communities and indigenous people, there are many, many uh, uh, students and, and, uh, and people on indigenous communities that don't want to leave their community. They'd rather stay there. Um, and this opens up those possible opportunities for them right there, um, which could be pretty cool. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the the amazing things with you know everybody is going to upskill with with online mm -hmm. learning. Yeah, and I, I do think it has the potential to to solve a lot of the challenges that we've been dealing with for a long time, and and this is certainly one. Right. Uh, um. One more thing, and we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to ask a couple more questions. One is. Um, we, we kind of address this to some degree with, with shorter uh, time frames in, in terms of the screen. But I guess the other thing is, is teachers trying to keep students engaged. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you know, this is, this is just another version of, of, um, of the classroom, because in the classroom, obviously, the teachers have to keep students engaged. But it just works a little bit differently on, in an online environment, but the same problem. Mm. So it is very much varying that activity. So, you know, you can imagine a class where, you know, they meet three hours a week. If all of that was interactive Zoom, it may be difficult to mm. keep students engaged in the longer run and be fraught with um, connectivity problems and so on. But there, there are various ways that things can be done. You can you can pre-videotape material that is right. important and let students watch it on their own time. Right. Um, you can you can have students interacting groups um, using the technology. So a lot of that is building in a lot of variety in, into the sorts of activities that students become involved in and trying to maintain engagement through that. Mm. I should say, but I, but I should say in, you know it is a little bit different when students are all at home. And they are trying to um, to to work on their courses. It does require a fair bit of self organization and sure. independence in how they approach it. So yeah. um, it, it it does present other challenges. But that engagement that you spoke of, I think, is is critically important. And it, and what it amounts to, you know, a new notion of what good teaching looks like sure. in an online environment. Yeah. 
And I, and I guess the other thing, and we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I, I want to just say this, is, and that is in terms of engagement, um, connectivity, and, and, and I imagine because we're, we're talking voice, we're using our voices to communicate, the audio signal has to be very good because if you were cutting out and you were you know, dropping out and students trying to hear what you're saying rather than listening to what you're saying, uh, there are two different tasks right there that a student is trying to, to do at the same time. And if they can't get what you're saying uh, from, from a poor audio signal, then that's not going to help either. You're right, and, and that that is a challenge of the the um, live sessions where mm -hmm. where they, they are happening at once. And one reason why we really advocate for pre-recording things, you know, these days if you have a if you have a decent um, phone, they mm -hmm. can take video and mm -hmm. a tripod and a, and and you're set up for it. Right, you can record video very easily, but students can more download the video and watch it at their own time. So they're less dependent on the immediate connectivity right. when it is happening. But, but good equipment, good audio, good video have never been more important because right. you, you can imagine after a long week of learning, if, if it wasn't good, that would really grate on one's nerves. It sure would. Gary, last quickly, uh, is there anything that you can think of that you can share around myths? Are there myths about online versus in-class experiences? Uh, I, I think one of the myths that's been around for a long time is, is just simply that, that it's not as good, mm. that, it, that it's lower quality. Mm. And I think that is the big one. Mm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's a lot of research that has drawn the conclusion that, you know, in most all cases, there really isn't a difference. Right. So I, I, think, I think we ought to move beyond that. Mm. And online instruction and in-class instruction are different things and they're not directly comparable but in terms of it achieving learning outcomes they're both good right. that said i would suggest that any learners that are looking at online really recognize that not, not all online learning that we see out there around us today is created equal mm. and they really do look for for quality courses right. from reputable players who have been in the business a long time right and, and have used that experience to design their courses and programs. Nicely said. We'll have to leave it there, Gary, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you once again, and we look forward to having you back because I'm sure we're going to hear more about this as it becomes a, a bigger and, and more important part of, of education and communication as we we've move forward, not only through this year, but uh, just uh, forward in time. And so it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show. Great talking to you, David, and uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Gary Thank Hepburn is the Dean of the Chang School of Continuing Education at Ryerson University. It's been a pleasure having him on. And that is this part of the show on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in either one of those coordinates and then E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and you can listen on your device of choice uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. It is our pleasure to welcome to the show... 
Annette Henry, and we are here to talk with her about uh, how to teach kids, teens, young adults about racism and uh, and racism in Canada specifically. Uh, Annette Henry holds the David Lamb Chair in Multicultural Education at the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. And uh, she's a professor in the Department of Language and Literacy Education and cross-appointment to the Institute of Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Social Justice. So, Annette, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm excited. You know, um, of course, this is a big topic these days, uh, no doubt, um, spurred by several recent incidents, but one that, uh, you know, should have been dealt with a long time ago. Uh, but it hasn't. Uh, spurred, of course, uh, most recently with uh, George Floyd in the States and that uh, ignited around the world uh, as we saw the, the unfortunate death uh, and, and, and tragic death that he, he uh, suffered. And uh, then, of course, there's been other incidents uh, with other black people as well as indigenous people here in Canada uh, most recently as well. So I guess... Um, your article that we are sort of taking this conversation off of is in the conversation, and uh, it it starts with, Dear White People, Wake Up. Canada is Racist. Why why did you feel you needed to write it in that way? Well, you know, I was trying to think of a title, and I I worked with the the editor of of, uh, the conversation for that. Mm. And uh, and at the I think at the time um, the film Dear White People was out, mm. but I really mm. wanted to, I want people to wake up and, and we always say racism doesn't happen here or mm. if it does, it, it's just a mild thing. It's not like the United States. Uh, they have so many problems there and uh, we don't seem to recognize, I mean, I'm je- overgeneralizing, so, of course, some people do, but Generally, we don't seem to recognize it when we're it's staring us in the face here. And so, for example, um, when uh, someone gets killed by the police here, we might say, um, oh, well, this person had, you know, this, this was just a, a, a rogue policeman or people have been talking about bad apples. Mm. But really, um, we have to look at the ways that things are systemically and societally structured and how deep-rooted these things are in our society, in education, in healthcare, the police force, you know, even churches are segregated, which says, I mean, mm. what, why are there no people of color in X particular church? Mm. Or why, why do we feel, why do students go to one university, uh, but they won't go to the other university across town? There are many reasons why, many mm. things in place that make the university they go to more accessible. So that's all part of systemic racism. So I wanted people to really, you know, and try to give examples. And I got a lot of pushback from people um, who read that article, who got in, very enraged with me for writing it, um, as well as people who said, write on, it's, it's time we recognize that Canada is racist. And that's, that's, I know I'm speaking on and on and on about this, but that is a very difficult thing for white people to hear is that Canada is a racist country. We don't like to hear that at all. Uh, But everything that has happened since white people came up onto this land that we're calling Canada now, every every 
thing that has happened between white people and non-white people has shown that racism uh, is is entrenched in in ways of doing, doing mm. uh, meaning policies, practices, ways of treating uh, people, very much so indigenous people from the beginning. Uh, so, so I really, really wanted us to in that article just to look at what is happening uh, in Canada and give some examples of things that are happening with racialized people. Well, you certainly took it back to the roots uh, by the statement you just made about uh, since since the beginning of of, of uh, you know white races coming to North America uh, and, and the relationship and what has happened there. You know, m- and recently we've seen articles, we've seen uh, leaders such as uh, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau come out and talk about systemic racism. Uh, and, and talk about what and how they interpret that, and um, you know, and you just said that you wrote this article and you got pushback from from people. Were these were the the people upset because you were pointing out that the racism existed, and it and it you you think it 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 has a an an impact on the people's uh, idea of them being Canadians and that we're better than that. Uh, and, and and they don't want to to look at that, uh, you know, and and realize it, because you know, systemic racism, as described by um, uh, the prime minister and and others, about it's it's in the language of the organizations that were established. It's written right in there. So it, it's almost you know, it, like in your article, it's sort of a it's very subtle. In its in its in the way that it has been put into the structure of the of the country, um, and and I'm wondering if uh, if you you know does that does that does that sit, sit with you? Does that sound about right? Uh, that, that it's very subtly. Um, yes, I, I think it's subtle for some, um, and I I can certainly understand but, why. So so let me uh, let me let me yeah, let me. What I mean by that is in the language of of the things that are written that's what i'm talking about not the subtlety of the racism uh, towards mm-hmm. people um you know there are there is different forms even from the article that you wrote there's blatant kinds and then there's there's as you point out later on about you know this is there's educated people that are also uh yeah. you know uh, racist and yeah. and 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 you point out those things but what i guess guess what i was talking about is going back to the foundation of the country and just the way that the you know the country was was founded and the the way things were written just as you know that established the racism uh, just in the way in the words that were used uh yes yes i i think that um uh Definitely, definitely. So, are you talking about, for example, uh, the the ways in which policies are written? And, it might be policies. Um, it's more in general that that you know. I think that that that's what I've heard people talking about now, and and that's the subtlety I was kind of referring to because we don't really realize it. It's like I know someone pointed this out on Twitter the other day when uh, you know said an alleged act of racism, and and someone oh, said oh, there's, yes, no, just, there's yes, no, yes, indeed, it's not alleged, indeed. you know, uh, those kind I, of it's the way the words are used that that soften it or or make it appear less than it might be, kind of you know. It, yes, it, and in fact, I think sometimes. Uh, the word racism isn't used when it, it 
should be people don't name race mm. um, when they're talking about uh, when they are talking about race. And when I mm. listen, sometimes I listen to the radio or the television and listen to the reporting, and it's almost as if the reporter is is afraid to to name what mm. they're really talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think um, I, I think we speaking of language. I think we have. Uh, a fear of using the term. Mm. Um, and that's one thing that I've tried to do at UBC is uh, help people be more articulate um, uh, in, in, in naming racism, in talking mm. about it. Mm. I think white people, especially, uh, not just white people, because even um, I was at a workshop last fall and we had to, with our partner, talk about um, when we first experienced racism, I couldn't get this woman for the life of me to acknowledge that she'd ever experienced racism. Mm. And then fine. And I kept pressing her, you know, so you, we weren't supposed to ask that per the person talking questions. But I said, mm. I, I just can't believe you've never experienced it. And she said, well, <laughs> when people come to the front desk, they do look at me like mm. they, I can tell they weren't expecting it, you know? Mm. So, so I think there's a reluctance to talk about it, but it's also hidden um, there's these codes in, mm. in the language. Mm. So um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. You never can when you want to. But um, <laughs> oh, I, I know one code is, for example, uh, neighborhoods. So when we're talking about the downtown east side, for mm. example, in Vancouver, there's a, it, it's not saying when they say a man on the downtown east side was um, arrested the listener has an idea right. of an indigenous man. Yes. It may have been a white man, mm -hmm. but because of the stereotype, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or even like uh, it, I've lived in Chicago for for 13 years and people would talk about, um, they would say things to me in the beginning I wouldn't understand. Oh, um, don't drive through that neighborhood someone was killed in that neighborhood. Mm. What they really meant was a white person was killed in that neighborhood. Black mm. people are killed all the time and nobody mentions it. Mm. So so I think um, I think language in a sense is that there's a mm -hmm. lot of um, the hidden, right. hidden codes in the language. Right. Now, going back to uh, you had gone to uh, a rally uh, in at Vancouver City Hall on August nineteenth, and um, there was there was someone interviewed, and they said they'd never seen a racist. That that got into your article. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, basically, actually, I had not gone to the rally, but I was. Okay. I think I was listening on listening mm. to CBC. Okay. Actually, I think, and he said he'd never. He, I think he said. Um, I've never seen a racist, you're right. He was on the television. Mm. I've never seen a racist. And, you know, I, my question was, what does a racist look like? Yes. Um, you know, they're not going around wearing neo-Nazi symbols, necessarily. Mm. It could be your boss. Mm. You know, it mm. could be, um, um, you, you know, your pastor. <laughs> right. Like, it could be your wife, you know. <laughs> so, so I think that's a, a, a misunderstanding. I've never seen a racist. Also, like... How does this? How may this person even be implicated in racism without mm -hmm. knowing it? Because it seems to me that he has a particular idea of of a neo-Nazi or right. a white supremacist. And, um, and stereotyping once again. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. 
so what I was trying to show in that is just this idea that Canada is so inclusive, we're so diverse, um, right. and you know we're not really looking at well our history. I think we don't know our history very well mm. uh, because this it's full of um, trying to erase certain groups mm -hmm. or separate them. Mm or not let them in if they're you know from a, from another country and uh, in terms of indigenous people of course just erase them or move them away we, mm -hmm. we just don't want we want you know keep them subjugated with all kinds of legislation the indian act all kinds of things you know they're suffering in schools not because they're not bright but historically they've been dished out the worst of the worst and there's you know trauma, all kinds of things. And and uh, so we, we, it's almost like we, we don't really look at that very much. It's, that's them, that's not us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just feel there's a lot of work to be done. Well, for sure. And that, of course, has come to the uh, forefront in the last few weeks with what has happened, uh, oh, yeah. both in the States mm -hmm. and in Canada, uh, mm -hmm. to say that how far have we come with this, uh, which doesn't yeah. seem like we've addressed these things. But on the plus side, I guess, we are seeing people and, and even uh, there was some, something in the news about uh, the prime minister wanting to move very quickly uh, to, to make change and, and work towards eradicating racism and uh, um, s systemic racism. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully we will see those things finally starting to happen. But I guess, you know, the other thing with all the talk that's going on about this everywhere, it really does come back down to uh, it is just like COVID-19. It's all our problem. It's not just a certain group of people. It's everybody that has to work towards this. Everybody has to do something. And I believe your article points that, to that about it, it isn't this isn't just an issue for black people or indigenous people. Uh, everyone yeah. has to step forward and do something about it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I disagree with the prime minister somewhat. Uh, I mean, moving quickly is great, but uh, it's going to take a long time to eradicate racism. And I know my mom said to me when I was a little girl, um, we're not going to see the end of racism in my lifetime or yours. Mm. And I think she was absolutely right. Mm. I think we do see progress slowly. Um, we no longer have a lot of, or do a lot of things, you know, when I think of things like, I mean, they change form because I was going to say there's no longer lynchings, but of course there are mm. in a different form. Yeah. Um, or we do see more uh, racialized people, let's say, and indigenous people in, um, and indigenous, indigenous people less, you know, in positions of authority. I am thinking of the university setting. I mean, to, to see a black woman in a position of, any kind of power in a university, a dean or even higher, forget that. Um, and I think, I think I, I read Melinda Smith's book from a couple of years ago. There was one indigenous man dean in the whole country in, in, in the U15, like the, mm. there's a group of 15 un research universities. There's mm. one indigenous man, right. uh, no indigenous women. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's, we have a long way to go, but we are making some progress. Even mm. the fact that, for example, all, all of the uh, police officers that uh, were accomplices, if you like, in the murder of um, George Floyd um, were charged. Yes. Sometimes 
none of them are. And even the, the guy who put his neck, put his knee on, on Floyd's neck, often that person isn't charged. So that's progress. I mean, we'll yes. see how they work through the court system. And, you know, sometimes there are loopholes that they get through. Um, but there's slowly, slowly, slowly there's progress but it's going to take a long time to eradicate racism because it's it's advantageous to white people. They yes. don't want to give up their power. Right. So they may give us a little crumb here and there, but I think it's rather advantageous for them to uh, keep the power. So, uh, and, and they're afraid of um, losing it. Of course. So I, yeah. I think it's going to take a long, long time. Yes, it, it's a, it, it is threatening. Uh, to yes. them, uh, yeah, we could go all the way down that road as well. Uh, my guest is Annette Henry. Uh, we're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. I'm just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those either one of those coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, my guest is Annette Henry, a professor and uh, David Lamb Chair in Multicultural Education, the Faculty of Education, and cross-appointed to the Social Justice Institute in the Faculty of Arts at the University of British Columbia. By the way, my son's going to be going to the University of British Columbia. He just graduated uh, and will be going for his master's there. So, uh, Oh, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> what, what, um, what's he going to study? Architecture. Architecture, yeah. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Um, So um, where do we, you're right, it's going to take a long time. There are small steps being taken, but it it seems at least, and I'm wondering, you know, we don't have the answer to this, but perhaps with with our interconnectivity, which I think really uh, allowed the the George Floyd situation to explode virtu- you know virally around the world at the same time to show that injustice and to show that that horrible uh, treatment and death um, that we're we're you know maybe it's starting to take an impact and and getting the people in the right places to finally start to uh, take some action to implement some things and and you know i think i may be misquoting when i said that he wants to uh take quick uh, the prime minister uh quick action maybe he just wanted to quickly implement something to eradicate uh, you know s- systemic mm-hmm. racism um which you know again is great that he wants to do that but you're you're absolutely correct it's going to take a long time to to implement and get these things changed but we have to start and the sooner we do the better yeah yeah that's true um i i think um i i think we we have to take action you know we're in a time where all kinds of businesses from walmart to universities to corporations are um sending out statements uh of anti-racism and that's good but we need the action too. We need the action. You know, um, I, you know. I'm just, I'm just wondering if COVID nineteen has uh, has brought us all together to some degree to point us to point to us that we are all connected. Doesn't matter who we are 
or where you are. That that is for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that experience of us being able to reflect on that has has at all uh, been able to allow us to to look to look closer at you know even what you were saying about how uh, people that may not experience or be aware of racism and think that it is non-existent or just very you know not everyone's perfect and that yeah there might be some 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 of this that happens here in in canada but perhaps and as pointed out with covid19 it's everyone's it's everyone's uh um uh role to to take action and i guess that means also looking at ourselves looking at each one of us and if you're someone that is that has not experienced racism uh, th- that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and mm-hmm. to maybe get uncomfortable to maybe get uncomfortable to look at what that means how your life may or may not have been affected but even if it's not not to ignore it but to still take action to to get rid of this yeah, I think so. And I, I do think, you know, the two are related uh, or mm. have a connection, mm. COVID-19 and uh, and George Floyd's mm. death. I think, you know, many people are still working just the way they were before, mm-hmm. but a lot of people have uh, more time. Mm-hmm. And mm. so if, if George Floyd had been murdered during Christmas rush and for Christmas holidays, mm. I think people might have just sloughed past it. Right. Uh, and so I think uh, a lot of things came together. Why? And also the, the fact that people ha- seem to be saying is a momentum of deaths. Uh, mm. And so um, we've had so many black men murdered and the people have said, okay, enough is enough is enough. We're not taking this anymore. Mm-hmm. This cannot happen. Mm-hmm. And it, then it just, you know, catapulted throughout the world because in all these other countries, men are being murdered by the police as well, you know, France, Britain, all these places. And so um, I think I think that's brought us together. And with the COVID-19 as well, like I think I agree with you. We all, we all are looking out for the next person a little more because what affects them affects us. We are so interconnected. And I think sometimes in this very individualistic society, we don't, you know, we, we, we think of ourselves only, I mean, we, we, in the beginning of COVID, we'd see people going home from the shopping, uh, from the like you know, supermarket right. with eight rolls of toilet paper, you yeah. think like, yeah, there's just no way right. you, you couldn't you'd be using all that, you know, mm. that much. And so I think now we're, we're thinking more of others. And uh, um, but I do actually hope I'm, I, I'm trying to stay optimistic. <laughs> I'm trying to say stay optimistic because mm. I wonder in six months from now, in a year from now, what what will this all have meant? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do also think that COVID has affected us in the way, in the sense that we've been all cooped up at home, and it's like we can let it all hang out now. When mm. the young people are down uh, downtown and mm. and protesting with passion, but part of it is we, we've just been so cooped up. Yeah, and I'm not saying they're not sincere, right? But you know, it's 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 
it's it's a beautiful thing, you know, but but and I, I think that it's a moment also for them to get out all this frustration of having to wash their hands all the time and and stay home and they can't go to parties and so, socialize with other people, you know, because when I talk to my students who've been to the protests, I mean, it, it was people were seriously protesting, but it was mm. also beautiful for them to see other human beings. I think right. I think we're connecting with each other's humanity in a big way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a, a, a young daughter of 15, and I, I think that they're, that you're right, their protesting is, is sincere. Their, their focus and their attention on these issues is also sincere. We saw that prior to the pandemic mm-hmm. with, with the climate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, where that was happening with, with the youth, because they are the ones that are going to inherit this world. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, of course, uh, right for them to, to say, hey, you know, we don't want to end up with a, with a mess. It's in a mess enough. We don't want it worse than it's going to be. So good for, good for youth standing up and paying attention. I don't think when I was 15, I was anywhere close to being uh, paying attention to the kind of things that I, I think youth are these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this comes back to words again, uh, you know, as we wrap up our conversation, uh, Annette, um, you know, uh, whether it be uh, COVID-19 or whether it be racism, because, um, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, how words are used and uh, racism can be crude or it can be obvious, but it, it can also be hidden uh, and and you know on the sly kind of thing, and it can be buried under under uh, 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 you know a facade of some kind. Yes. And uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be difficult to eradicate it, but we all have to uh, we all have to come to the fore and and try to do what we can uh, to to make changes uh, in our personal lives and in the people's lives around us. Uh, to to try and do this, and let's hope let's hope that this doesn't uh, fall away, that that it does perpetuate, that it does keep going forward, and that we are able to make changes. Yes, indeed. Anything? I, I, think, I think we have to. We have to. Yeah. As um, Henry Jouy says, we have to live as if democracy exists. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Great way for us to end the conversation, Annette. Unless there's anything else you'd like to add just before we finish. Uh, no, I, I think, uh, you know, we remain hopeful and uh, we have to keep that hope and um, work in our little corners wherever we are to eradicate racism, knowing that we may not see it in in uh, your lifetime or mine, but um, knowing that uh, change is possible hmm. and believing that change is possible. Maybe it won't be eradicated, but maybe we can put a nice dent in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think eventually all the, all of the little dents will lead mm, to something. Exactly. Annette, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. Annette Henry, she's a professor and uh, David Lamb, chair in multicultural education at the Faculty of Education and cross-appointed to the Social Justice Institute and the Faculty of Arts at the University of British Columbia pleasure to have her on the show. And that is our show for today. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to Moment of Truth and uh, 106.5 and 95.7 in Toronto and Ottawa. We'll see you next time right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.